Well, there's a story that's become pretty epic in the Velibert household. Uh, it took place during my uh, childhood on a Christmas morning. Uh, my dad was there sitting on the couch and took his wallet and set it right there on the armrest of the couch. And in the chaos of Christmas morning, as wrapping paper is flying everywhere and toys are being opened, a, a pile of the unopened boxes got stuck there uh, right before or right in the front of uh, the couch. And somehow, at some point, my dad's wallet got knocked off and landed in those uh, boxes, the empty boxes. Well, as everything was getting cleaned up and packed up, the boxes ended up in a garbage bag, and uh, the very next day, there they go, uh, taken off to the city dump. Well, somehow, my dad was able to piece kind of the clues together and kind of retrace how things had happened and realized, oh my gosh, my wallet is now at the dump. <laughs> And so he jumps into his truck and heads down to the dump uh, in Jacksonville and kind of comes in and starts to engage uh, the guys as to, hey, I live over here, and where would that truck be, and, and has it come in yet? And the guys are just kind of like, yeah, right, man, <laughs> like, there's no way. And they said, well, that truck's actually not here yet. And sure enough, that truck comes in. My dad follows the truck to where it goes tells the driver what's going on, again, yeah, right, okay, and, and, and the driver starts to unload the contents of the truck into this huge pile of trash. My dad grabs a stick and starts poking around, and wouldn't you know, there comes his wallet tumbling down right in front of him with a new custom crease from where the truck had crushed it, but there was his wallet. I've had similar stories night before a mission trip, and I'm scrambling to find my lost passport, right, because I can't leave in the morning without it, a lost wedding ring, a lost kid. Thankfully, they're all accounted for today, uh, but that happened, right? And I'm sure you've had similar stories, something of value of yours that was lost, and then what a relief, right? Whew. When you find it, what was lost is found. Well, a few weeks ago, we started this series uh, that we're calling The Mission, and we looked at the fame of God. And if there was one area that I would challenge you to continually fix your gaze and set your heart in really every area of your life, it would be the pursuit and the priority of the fame of God in your life. Because when it comes down to it, that is the mission. That the supremacy and that the fame and glory of God would so capture every fiber of your very being that you would be radically changed and live eternally focused. Yet I know the reality is that life gets in the way of, well, true life, right? The life that God has designed for us as we walk in step with His Spirit, as we pursue His heart, as we give our lives for His mission, making disciples to the very ends of the earth, well, it gets crowded out. And it gets crowded out by entertainment and activities and family and friends and jobs and school and sports, and the list could go on and on. Yet deep down inside of us, even with all of that swirling around us, 
As followers of Christ, we realize there must be something more that we should give our lives to. And there is. And that's the mission. And so we've seen so far in this series that God uses the found to reach the lost. That's where our part comes in. We've been invited to be a part of the mission. And then we've also seen that when it comes to evangelism, the religious folks tend to look down. What did Jesus do? He looked up. And so we want to have eyes to see like Jesus sees because we know the reality is this. We treat people the way that we see people. If you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand uh, this morning with me in honor of God's Word. We'll be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. We're going to cover the front half of that chapter this morning, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heavenly Father, in these next moments, would you open our eyes to the spiritual reality of what you have for us from your word this morning? Because God, I firmly believe you've got a message for your church today for us to hear as we try to better understand your heart and your mission. And so, Father, as always, we come to your word not merely seeking information. God, we come seeking transformation that we would be changed more and more in the likeness and image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, my heart today, for those who are far off, God, those who are lost, God, would you draw them in by the power of your Spirit, May they have a life-changing encounter with you this morning. And for those of us that know you, may you tune our hearts and our minds. Would you give us eyes to see the world the way that you see the world? We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Luke 15 is really a series of three parables of of someone or something that is lost and then is subsequently found. We just read the first two where we saw a sheep, one out of a hundred, that was lost and then found. Then we read about a coin. It got narrowed down in its value, one out of ten, 
that was lost and then found. Then uh, next week, Pastor David will show you a son, one out of two, that was lost and then found. But you could honestly really argue that both were lost. But in every story, there's one who is lost and then found. And then you'll notice in each of the, the parables, in each of these stories, there's exuberant joy when what was lost has been returned, when it is found. And so Jesus is trying to teach us something here through these parables, something that has a far deeper spiritual meaning than we may read in just a story. So what do we do with parables when we read them in Scripture? We meditate on the images. We look at the imagery and we look with spiritual eyes to find ourselves in the parables. That's why they're spoken. And you'll notice we're there. We are in these stories. But you also notice the gospel's there. And it's there for us to rightly apply to our hearts. So Jesus tells these parables really in response to criticism. Uh, we saw it in the first few verses. The religious leaders had kind of gathered. That was uh, kind of their practice. Wherever Jesus was, they're kind of hanging around and trying to listen in, trying to trap him and, and kind of understand what he's trying to, to say. And so they're gathered around um, and their criticism centers around the people that Jesus is hanging out with. And the people that Jesus is actually teaching, tax collectors and sinners, two groups of people here, tax collectors, those who had sold out their own people to the government of Rome, to work under the authority of the government of Rome, and, and likely were also skimming off the top so that they could make a profit. So they were a traitor to their own people. They were swindlers, if you will, uh, by their very nature and not well-liked. And then we have this group just simply known as the sinners. Well, this would have represented a particular class of people, those with notorious sexual sins, those that were diseased or, or, or maimed or deformed, the, the outcasts of society all lumped into this group just simply known as the sinners. And isn't it fascinating that the most religious, I mean the people who knew the word of God inside and outside had, had most of it memorized were actually repulsed by the very word who had become flesh. The, the religious were the most critical of Jesus and ultimately rejected Jesus. And isn't it interesting that the ones who rightfully so, should have been the most far off from Jesus based on their choices, based on their lifestyle, based on their sin uh, nature. These that had rejected and gone kind of their own direction, the tax collectors, the sinners, they're the ones who wanted to be closest to him, who wanted to be near to him. Those were the ones who drew in towards him. Those were the ones that he drew in. Which group represents you this morning? Are you sitting here this morning wondering why God would ever save those people? Or why people like that would come into our church? Or are you here this morning amazed that God would even reach out and save you? 
Or maybe you're here and you can't really figure out why you're here, but you're curious. You can sense there's something to this Jesus guy. Listen, faith family, these two parables about the sheep and the coin are really Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, what is the mission of God? He answers it in a way that they're not even asking, and his answer is this, God has come into the world to seek and to save sinners. Or we could put it more simply, and it would be this, lost people matter to God. That's what Jesus is answering uh, by the questions that the Pharisees really aren't even asking. He's illustrating to them what he is all about and by nature what then we should be about. So if lost people matter to God, lost people should matter to us. God's mission should be our mission And it's actually amazing to me to think about that God would even invite us in or include us into his mission. He doesn't need us to complete his mission, but he certainly wants us to. He's invited us to participate in with him. And so let's look at a few truths from our text this morning. The first is this, Jesus, our shepherd, is abounding in compassion Jesus answers the Pharisees by giving him, by giving them a picture of his heart, by showing them his great compassion. See, these religious leaders were so bound up in the rules and the regulations, uh, they were gripped so tightly by the letter of the law that they missed the very heart of the law. And they missed Jesus himself. And so Jesus says, Hey, listen, when I receive sinners, when I eat with tax collectors, It's like a shepherd who leaves 99 found sheep. Those that think they've got it all together. Those that are righteous, probably more accurately self-righteous. And I'm going to go out and leave them. And I'm going to go into the wilderness and I'm going to find the one lost sheep. And he's saying to them, you need to see me as a shepherd who loves the lost so much that they are of such value to me that I'm willing to expend whatever time it would take, whatever resources it would take to find that one lost sheep. And you notice when he finds it, he gently puts it on his shoulders. He doesn't shame it. He doesn't rebuke it. And he carries it home. He brings it back to the flock. And what they don't seem to get, these religious leaders, but we should not miss the imagery this morning is, we're those sheep. That's us. That, that's our story. Much has been said about the imagery of sheep, that they're dumb or helpless, uh, but I honestly don't think that's the point. You know, even the prophet Isaiah reminds us, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way. But the Lord has laid on who? Jesus. The iniquity of us all. See, this passage is not primarily about the ineptness of the sheep, but it's about the glorious grace of God who would send his son to be crushed for our iniquities. And I would argue this morning that sheep aren't dumb, but sheep are dependent. 
Sheep are dependent on their shepherd. See, to describe sheep as dumb or stupid focuses on the shortcomings or the inadequacies of the sheep. And the danger here is that that leads us to believe that uh, the created nature of these sheep is deficient. But I would argue that the created nature of the sheep is unique in that they're created to depend on their shepherd. That's the design. And it's this trait of dependence that the shepherd, why God would show us this sheep in relationship to him as the shepherd so that we could thus see our dependence and see his abounding compassion for us. Jesus also shows the, the Pharisees his compassion uh, in a story about a woman who lost a silver coin, a, a drachma, which is about one day's wage. So she's lost about a tenth of her savings. And she's looking all over the house for this uh, coin, saying, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to light a lamp. I'll take the broom. I'm sweeping. I'll do whatever it takes to find my lost coin. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. Every time I eat with tax collectors and sinners, every time I invite them in, that is me. That's my compassion because lost coins are valuable. And they're valuable to me. And I'm abounding in compassion for the lost. Now, don't forget that Jesus is talking about uh, two distinct groups of people that really couldn't be further apart culturally and spiritually. Tax collectors and sinners and religious people couldn't be further apart on the spectrum. And Jesus is saying, my compassion is enough for both of you. You don't see it rightly. But my compassion is there for you, for the sinners over here that feel so far off with no hope of even receiving God's love. He says, see my compassion? You can't get to me. I've come to you. I'm chasing after you. When you couldn't save yourself, when you never thought you would be found, I found you and I love you. And then he says to the religious now, his criticism of them was strong, but his compassion for them was even stronger. He, he says to them, see my compassion? I'm willing to leave the, the 99. That's you, the one who are following the rules, the one who think you have it all together. I'm going to show you that my love is not contingent on anything that you do or what you think your pedigree is. I'm going to show you my love. It's a pursuing love by loving the ones that you deem unlovable, the ones you don't think are even worthy of love. And I'll show you my love because I'll even invite you into the party. <laughs> when they're found, you're welcome to come in and join this party. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, has done wonders for my heart in, in understanding and embracing the heart and the very nature of Jesus. And so let these words about our great shepherd's compassion wash over you this morning. He writes, let Jesus draw you in through the loveliness of his heart. This is a heart that upbraids the impenitent 
with all the harshness that is appropriate, yet embraces the penitent with more openness than we're able to feel. It's a heart that walks us into the bright meadow of the felt love of God. It's a heart that drew the despised and forsaken to his feet in self-abandoning hope. It's a heart of perfect balance and proportion, never overreaching, never excusing, never lashing out. It's a heart that throbs with desire for the destitute. It's a heart that floods the suffering with the deep solace of shared solidarity in that suffering. It is a heart that is gentle and lowly. That's the heart of our shepherd, abounding in compassion. See, the truth is you're in one of those two groups this morning that Jesus is speaking to. You're either far from him by sin or you're far from him in your self-righteousness and religion. And the message is for both groups. The message is for all of us. See and experience his amazing love and compassion. Second thing we see from our text this morning is that Jesus, our Savior, is absolute in his commitment. We've got a lost sheep. And it's interesting that the same word here that is translated lost is the same word in John 3.16 that is translated perish. So this isn't a sheep that has just kind of wandered safely away. This is a sheep that is in danger of death. This is a sheep that's headed for destruction. The nature and the design of the sheep left him with no ability to refind the flock or to refind the shepherd, if you will. Isn't that you and I? Wandering off, not knowing the destruction that awaits, with no ability to save or rescue ourselves. And because the shepherd knows this, he is resolute in his commitment and desire to save and rescue this lost sheep from peril. In a similar fashion, the coin had no ability to find the woman. Now we know that when a coin was stamped, it was stamped with the image of the ruler of the day, which means when a coin was lost in the dirt, the image of that ruler on the coin would be hidden and marred. Do you see the symbolism to our own lives and our own stories, this symbolism of a silver coin that is being lost in darkness and in the dirt? That's us, stamped with the image of Creator God on our lives, lost in darkness, lost in the dirt, needing to be found, needing to be cleansed. And yes, you're supposed to see yourself in these stories, but you're also supposed to see Jesus. That's why in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who lays down my life for the sheep. In this passage, the dependence of the sheep on the shepherd is not presented as a shortcoming, but it's actually presented as a good and glorious thing. The sheep of Jesus, what? Know his voice. And it says he knows them. The sheep of Jesus are protected by him. They're provided for by him. And most significantly and inclusively, exclusively, Jesus willingly lays down his life for his sheep. Church, this is the good news of the gospel. 
Don't miss this morning that you have a great shepherd who is totally committed to sacrifice his own safety on a potentially dangerous journey to find and save that lost sheep. You have a Savior who is willing to do whatever it takes to turn a house upside down in order to find a lost silver coin. Remember, the woman still had nine coins left. In a culture that lived day-to-day with very little savings or savings uh, accounts like we do, she loses a day's wage, but she still has nine saved up. Why turn the house upside down for one coin? Because our Savior is absolute in his commitment to seek and to save that which is lost. And, And this commitment is remarkable, considering it doesn't even make mathematical sense. If you were to run a cost-benefit analysis, you'd, you'd likely just let the one go. I mean, it's one sheep out of 99. It's one-tenth of what you have. It's one coin. Yet Jesus' response highlights the shocking grace and commitment of God. There's a love and a commitment of the Savior who's willing to risk it all for the lost. And that's because love is, not a com- not, love is a commitment, not just a feeling. Love is not reasonable. It does not fit into human equations. The math of the kingdom does not fit into the metrics of our culture. And God's love and commitment to save the lost knows no boundaries. Even those that we would deem unreachable, maybe like someone bound in Islam and raised by a Hamas founder. Uh, my name is uh, Musab Hassan Youssef. I'm the oldest uh, son of Sheikh Hassan Youssef, one of the founders of uh, Hamas organization. I became a Jesus follower for the uh, standards and uh, for the logics of Christianity. I saw the Quran and Islam as the law that will help humans to improve their lives and have justice have peace, and be a bitter people. And through my experience in Islam, I didn't see that happening, and I don't see it happening in the future, period. Now, uh, after reading uh, the Bible, and uh, starting to understand Christianity as not a religion and a bunch of rules, uh, as a message of love, that all of it leads to the word love as the most important word of the Bible, and God himself is love. It's a big problem for uh, a Muslim to become a Christian, and this is not an easy thing, especially for somebody in my case, in my situation. Uh, I had a huge sacrifice to do to turn my back to Islam. My message today to Muslims, to Jewish people, even to Christians, God can be between us any time, any moment. And he can appear between us, through us, through our friends, through our people. He's working in the most uh, complicated and the darkest situations where everybody thinks that there is no God because this is a situation where, the, where governments, technology, seculars, everybody failed. He's making a big, huge progress. It's unseen for them, but I am one of the examples.
Is there anyone out of the reach of God? Is there anyone that he is not willing to save? Church, let's do our part to tell others about Jesus. The third thing we see this morning is that God our Father is abundant in celebration. Jesus found the sheep, and what do we read? Verse 5 and 6, when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. I found that which was lost. Laughter, rejoicing, a full-on party because the sheep that was lost is now found. And likewise, when the woman finds that coin in verse 9, when she found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Rejoice. Come and celebrate Because the silver coin that I had lost is no longer lost, it's found. Charles Spurgeon writes of this celebration, there are days, good days in heaven, days of sonnet, red letter days of overflowing adoration. And these are the days when the shepherd brings home the lost sheep upon his shoulder. When the church has swept her house and found the lost piece of money. For then are these friends and neighbors called together and they rejoice with unspeakable joy and full of glory over one sinner that repents. When Jonathan Edwards studied Luke 15, he made an astounding discovery. When one sinner repents and reaches out to Jesus in the gospel or just as accurately when Jesus reaches down and saves a lost sinner, heaven is filled with new decibels of joy. In other words, more joy can be added to heaven. Uh, Verse 10 told us that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. Heaven throws a party when one that is lost is found. Why? Because something has been restored to its proper place. That which was ugly and dirty and marred by sin is now made beautiful by the grace of God. It's a glorious day when one lost person is saved by the grace of God. And we're not even talking about a multitude of people that were responded in faith at like a Billy Graham crusade or something like that. We're talking about one soul, one person who has repented, who was lost and is now found and heaven erupts in celebration. We aren't told of any other celebration at any other moment when angels rejoice in heaven other than when a lost sinner is found and saved. I'll never forget the first time I was able to lead one of my friends to Christ as a middle school student. Sharing the gospel with him, nervous, not getting the words right, I'm sure, but just in faith, wanting him to know the Jesus that I knew and being able to pray with him and watch him receive Jesus Christ. I could have run through a brick wall. I think the smile on my face lasted for months. There was such joy in seeing one of my friends who was lost give his life to Jesus Christ. Man, I wish I could tell you that it's still the same for me. And I was convicted heavily of that, even thinking about that this week. Joy erupts in heaven, and somehow that joy has faded a little bit for me. And so my prayer, God, give me that joy back. 
Don't let the joy of seeing the lost step from death to life ever fade in my life. And could that be our goal, faith family? God, would you use us to help the lost find you? John Piper says it so clearly. We exist to extend the grace of God to those outside the faith in evangelism for the ingathering of God's elect from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation to the glory of God. May that be what we're about. In 1942, somewhere over the Pacific and out of radio range, a B-17 known as the Flying Fortress ran out of fuel and crashed into the ocean. The eight crew members would spend the next months floating in three rafts. They battled the heat and the storms, the water itself. Sharks some 10 feet long would ram their rafts. After only three days, their rations were either eaten or destroyed by the salt water. It would certainly take a miracle to survive. Well, the crew had a practice of doing daily devotions in the morning. And one morning after their time of devotion, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker leaned his head back against the raft and he pulled his hat over his eyes. Next thing you know, a bird landed on his head. He peered out from under his hat, and he saw that every eye was on him. He instinctively knew that it was a seagull, and he stealthily reached up and grabbed it, and the crew ate it. The bird's intestines were used to catch uh, fish, and the crew survived to tell the story, a story about a stranded crew with no hope in sight. A story about prayers offered and prayers answered. A story about a persistent wife who convinced the Navy not to give up and to keep searching until a successful rescue. Well, you may have heard the Rickenbacker story before, but you may not know the real story of the real miracle. It wasn't the miracle of the seagull. It wasn't even the miracle of the rescue. This was a miracle of the heart of one of the crewmen, James Whitaker. See, the greatest event of that day wasn't the rescue of the crew, but the rescue of a soul. You see, James Whitaker was an unbeliever. The plane crash didn't change his unbelief. The days where they faced death didn't cause him to reconsider his eternal destiny. In fact, later, Whitaker's wife would go on to say that her husband grew irritated of the other crew members that continually read the Bible either to themselves or out loud while they were adrift. But unknown to Whitaker, the soil of his heart was being plowed by those very scriptures because it was one morning after the Bible reading that that seagull landed on Captain Rickenbacker's head. And at that moment, James Whitaker became a believer. Cross from death to life spiritually. Isn't that just like God? Who else would go to such extremes to save a soul? What an incredible effort to get one guy's attention, spiritually speaking. The rest of the world totally occupied with the war that was going on in Europe, and God our Father is in the Pacific sending a missionary seagull 
to save a soul. Don't miss the length which God will go to get your attention and win your affection. Do you find yourself stranded by sin this morning? Maybe you feel like you're drifting away from God with no hope of rescue. Can I give you some good news this morning? He is a prayer away. Cry out to him. Seek him for rescue. Put your faith and hope in his one and only son, Jesus, who died to save you. And if you find yourself this morning like me, remembering what it was like to be lost and then found, to be drifting and then to be rescued, isn't that story worth sharing with someone this week? The greatest story. Who in your sphere of influence needs to hear God's great story of rescue. Let's join God in his divine rescue mission as he seeks and saves the lost. Let's pray.